Chapter 9 of Harry Heathcote of Gangoyle by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 The Bush Fight. Harry Heathcote had on this occasion entertained no doubt whatever that the fire had been intentional and premeditated. A lighted torch must have been dragged along the grass so as to ignite a line many yards long all at the same time. He had been luckily near enough to the spot to see almost the commencement of the burning, and was therefore aware of its form and circumstances. He almost wondered that he had not seen the figure of the man who had drawn the torch, or at any rate heard his steps. Pursuit would have been out of the question, as his work was wanted at the moment to extinguish the flames. The miscreant probably had remembered this, and had known that he might escape stealthily without the noise of a rapid retreat. When the work was over, when he put out the fire he had himself lighted, and had exterminated the lingering remnants of that which had been intended to destroy him, he stood still a while, almost in despair. His condition seemed to be hopeless. What could he do against such a band of enemies, knowing as he did that, had he been backed even by a score of trusty followers, one foe might still suffice to ruin him? At the present moment he was very hot with the work he had done, as were also Jacko and the German. O'Dowd had also come up as they were completing their work. Their mode of extinguishing the flames had been to beat them down with branches of gum-tree loaded with leaves. By sweeping these along the burning ground, the low flames would be scattered and expelled. But the work was very hard and hot. The boughs they used were heavy, and the air around them, sultry enough from its own properties, was made almost unbearable by the added heat of the fires. The work had been so far done, but it might be begun again at any moment, either near or at a distance. No doubt the attempt would be made elsewhere along the boundary between Gangor and Bulabong, was very probably being made at this moment. The two men whom he could trust, and Jacko, were now with him. They were wiping their brows with their arms, and panting with their work. He first resolved on sending Mickey O'Dowd to the house. The distance was great, and the man's assistance might be essential but he could not bear to leave his wife without news from him. Then, after considering a while, he made up his mind to go back toward his own fence, making his way as he went southerly down toward the river. They who were determined to injure him would, he thought, repeat their attempt in that direction. He hardly said a word to his two followers, but rode at a foot-pace to the spot at his fence which he had selected as the site of his bivouac for the night. "'It won't be very cheery, Bender,' he said to the German, but we shall have to make a night of it till they disturb us again. The German made a motion with his arms, intended to signify his utter indifference. One place was the same as another to him. Jacko uttered his usual ejaculation, and then, having hitched his horse to the fence, threw himself on his back upon the grass. No doubt they all slept, but they slept as watchers sleep, with one eye open. It was Harry who first saw the light, which a few minutes later made itself visible to the ladies at the home station. "'Carl!' he exclaimed, jumping up. "'They're at it again. Look there!' In less than half a minute, and without speaking another word, they were all on their horses and riding in the direction of the light. It came from a part of the Boulabong run somewhat nearer to the river than the place at which they had stationed themselves, where the strip of ground between Harry's fence and the acknowledged boundary of Brownby's run was the narrowest. As they approached the fire, 
they became aware that it had been lighted on Boulabong. On this occasion Harry did not ride on up to the flames, knowing that the use or loss of a few minutes might save or destroy his property. He hardly spoke a word as he proceeded on his business, feeling that they upon whom he had had to depend were sufficiently instructed, if only they would be sufficiently energetic. Keep it well under, but let it run, as, lighting a dried bush with a match, he ran the fire along the ground in front of the coming flames. A stranger seeing it all would have felt sure that the remedy would have been as bad as the disease, for the fire which Harry himself made every now and again seemed to get the better of those who were endeavouring to control it. There might perhaps be a quarter of a mile between the front of the advancing fire and the line at which Harry had commenced to destroy the food which would have fed the coming flames. He himself, as quickly as he lighted the grass, which in itself was the work but of a moment, would strain himself to the utmost at the much harder task of controlling his own fire, so that it should not run away with him, and get, as it were, out of his hands, and be as bad to him as that which he was thus seeking to circumvent. The German and Jacko worked like heroes, probably with intense enjoyment of the excitement, and after a while found a fourth figure among the flames, for Mickey had now returned. "'You saw them?' Harry said, panting with his work. "'These are all right,' said Mickey, flopping away with a great bow. "'But that tarnation Chinese has gone off.' "'My word, sing, sing! Find him at Boulabong!' said Jacko. The German, whose gum-tree bow was a very big one, and whose every thought was intent on letting the fire run while he still held it in hand, had not breath for a syllable. But the back fire was extending itself so as to get round them. Every now and then Harry extended his own line, moving always forward towards Gangor as he did so, though he and his men were always on Brownby's territory. He had no doubt but that where he could succeed in destroying the grass for a breadth of forty or fifty yards, he would starve out the inimical flames. The trees and bushes without the herbage would not enable it to travel a yard. Wherever the grass was burned down black to the soil, the fire would stop. But should they, who were at work, once allow themselves to be outflanked, their exertions would be all in vain. And then those wretches might light a dozen fires. The work was so hard, so hot, and often so hopeless, that the unhappy young squatter was more than once tempted to bid his men desist and to return to his homestead. The flames would not follow him there. He could at any rate make that safe. And then, when he had repudiated this feeling as unworthy of him, he began to consider within himself whether he had not do better of his property by taking his men with him on to his run, and endeavouring to drive his sheep out of danger. But as he thought of all this, he still worked, still fired the grass, and still controlled the flames. Presently he became aware of what seemed to him at first to be a third fire. Through the trees in the direction of the river he could see the glimmering of low flames and the figures of men. But it was soon apparent to him that these men were working in his cause, and that they too were burning the grass that would have fed the advancing flames. At first he could not spare the minute which would be necessary to find out who was his friend, but as they drew nearer he knew the man. It was the sugar-planter from the mill, and with him his foreman. "'We've been doing our best,' said Medicut, "'but we've been terribly afraid that the fire would slip away from us.' "'It's the only thing,' said Harry, too much excited at the moment to ask questions as to the cause of Medicut's presence so far from his home at that time of the evening. "'It's getting round us, I'm afraid, all the same.' "'I don't know, but it is. It's almost impossible to distinguish.' 
How hot the fire makes it! Hot indeed, said Harry. It's killing work for men, and then all for no good. To think that men, creatures that call themselves men, should do such a thing as this, it breaks one's heart. He paused as he spoke, leaning on the great battered bough which he held, but in an instant was at work with it again. Do you stay here, Mr. Medlicott, with the men, and I'll go on beyond where you began. If I find the fire growing down, I'll shout, and they can come to me. So saying, he rushed on with a lighted bush-torch in his hand. Suddenly he found himself confronted in the bush by a man on horseback, whom he at once recognised as Georgie Brownby. He forgot for a moment where he was, and began to question the reprobate as to his presence at that spot. "'That's like your impotence,' said Georgie. "'You're not only trespassing, but you're destroying our property willfully. And you ask me what business I have here? You're a nice sort of young man.' Harry, checked for a moment by the remembrance that he was in truth upon Boonabong Run, did not at once answer. "'Put that bush down, and don't burn our grass,' continued Georgie, "'or you shall have to answer it. What right have you to fire our grass?' "'Who fired it first? "'Light it itself. That's no rule why you should light it more. "'You give over, or I'll punch your head for you.' Harry's men and Medlicott were advancing toward him, tramping out their own embers as they came. And Georgie Brownby, who was alone, when he saw that there were four or five men against him, turned round and rode back. "'Did you ever see impudence like that?' said Harry. "'He's probably the very man who set the match, and yet he comes and brazens it out with me.' "'I don't think he's the man who set the match,' said Medicott quietly. "'At any rate, there was another.' "'Who was it?' "'My man Noakes. I saw him with a torch in his hand.' "'Heaven and earth!' "'Yes, Mr. Heathcote, I saw him put it down. "'You were about right, you see, and I was about wrong.' Harry had not a word to say, unless it were to tell the man that he loved him for the frankness of his confession. But the moment was hardly auspicious for such a declaration. There was no excuse for them to pause in their work, for the fire was still crackling at their back, and they did no more than pause. "'Ah,' said Harry, "'there it goes. We shall be done at last.' for he saw that he was being outflanked by the advancing flames. But still they worked, drawing lines of fire here and there, and still they hoped that there might be ground for hope. Noakes had been seen, but, pregnant as the theme might be with words, it was almost impossible to talk. Questions could not be asked and answered without stopping in their toil. There were questions which Harry longed to ask. Could Milly could swear to the man? Did the man know that he had been seen? If he knew that he had been watched while he lit the grass, he would soon be far away from Medlicott's mill and Gangoyle. Harry felt that it would be a consolation to him in his trouble if he could get hold of this man and keep him and prosecute him and have him hung. Even in the tumult of the moment, he was able to reflect about it and to think that he remembered that the crime of arson was capital in the colony of Queensland. He had endeavoured to be good to the men with whom he had dealings, he had not stinted their food, or cut them short in their wages, or been hard in exacting work from them. And this was his return. Ideas as to the excellence of absolute dominion and power flitted across his brain, such power as Abraham, no doubt, exercised. In Abraham's time the people were submissive, and the world was happy. Harry Heathcote, at least, had never heard that it was not happy. But as he thought of all this, he worked away with his bush and his matches, extinguishing the flames here and lighting them there, 
striving to make a cordon of black bare ground between Bulabong and Gangoyle. Surely Abraham had never been called on to work like this. He and his men were in a line covering something about a quarter of a mile of ground, of which line he was himself the nearest to the river, and Medicut and his foreman the farthest from it. The German, no doubt, were in the middle, and Jacko was working with his master. If Harry had just cause for anger and sorrow in regard to Noakes and Boscobble, he certainly had equal cause to be proud of the staunchness of his remaining satellites. The men worked with a will, as though the whole run had been the personal property of each of them. Noakes and Boscobble would probably have done the same had the fires come before they had quarrelled with their master. It is a small and narrow point that turns the rushing train to the right or to the left. The rushing man is often turned off by a point as small and narrow. "'My word,' said Jacko on a sudden, "'here they are, all across back.' And as he spoke, there was the sound of half a dozen horsemen galloping up to them through the bush. "'Why, there's Boss, his own self,' said Jacko. The two leading men were Joe and Jerry Bramby, who for this night only had composed their quarrels, and close to them was Boscobble. There were others behind, also mounted, Jack Brownby and Georgie, and Noakes himself. But they, though their figures were seen, could not be distinguished in the gloom of the night. Nor indeed did Harry at first discern of how many of the party had consisted. It seemed that there was a whole troop of horsemen, whose purpose it was to interrupt him in his work, so that the flames should certainly go ahead and it was evident that the men thought that they could do so without subjecting themselves to legal penalties. As far as Harry Heathcote could see, they were correct in their view. He could have no right to burn the grass on Boulabong. He had no claim even to be there. It was true that he could plead that he was stopping the fire which they had purposely made, but they could prove his handwork, whereas it would be almost impossible that he should prove theirs. The whole forest was not red, but lurid with the fires, and the air was laden with both the smell and the heat of the conflagration. The horsemen were dressed, as was Harry himself, in trousers and shirts, with old slouch hats, and each of them had a cudgel in his hand. As they came galloping up through the trees, they were as uncanny and unwelcome a set of visitors as any man was ever called on to receive. Harry, necessarily, stayed his work and stood still to bear the brunt of the coming attack. But Jacko went on with his employment faster than ever, as though a troop of men in the dark were nothing to him. Jerry Brownby was the first to speak. "'What's this you're up to, Heathcote? Firing our grass? It's arson. You shall swing for this.' "'I'll take my chance of that,' said Harry, turning to his work again. "'No, I'm blessed if you do. Ride over him, boss, while I stop these other fellows.' The Brambys had been aware that Harry's two boundary-riders were with him, but had not heard of the arrival of Medlicott and the other man. Noakes was aware that someone on horseback had been near him when he was firing the grass, but had thought that it was one of the party from Gangoyle. By the time that Jerry Brambie had reached the German, Medlicott was there also. "'Who the deuce are you?' asked Jerry. "'Whose business is that of yours?' said Medlicott. "'No business of mine. Are you firing our grass? I'll let you know my business pretty quickly.' "'It's that fellow Medlicott from the sugar-mill,' said Joe. "'The man that Noakes is with.' "'I thought you was a horse of another colour," continued Jerry, who had been given to understand that Medlicott was Heathcote's enemy. "'Anyway, I won't have my grass fired. "'If God Almighty chooses to send fires, we can't help it. "'But I'm not going to have incendiaries here as well. "'You're a new chum and don't understand what you're about. 
but you must stop this. As Medicut still went on putting out the fire, Jerry attempted to ride him down. Medlicott caught the horse by the rein and violently backed the brute in among the embers. The animal plunged and reared, getting his head loose, and at last came down, he and his rider together. In the meantime, Joe Brownby, seeing this, rode up behind the sugar-planter and struck him violently with his cudgel over the shoulder. Medlicott sank nearly to the ground, but at once recovered himself. He knew that some bone on the left side of his body was broken, but he could still fight with his right hand, and he did fight. Boscobel and Georgie Brownby both attempted to ride over Harry together, and might have succeeded had not Jacko ingeniously inserted the burning branch of gum-tree with which he had been working under the belly of the horse on which Boscobel was riding. The animal jumped immediately from the ground, bucking into the air, and Boscobel was thrown far over his head. Georgie Brownby then turned upon Jacko, but Jacko was far too nimble to be caught, and escaped among the trees. For a few minutes the fight was general, but the footman had the best of it, in spite of the injury done to Medlicott. Jerry was bruised and burned about the face by his fall among the ashes, and did not much relish the work afterward. Boscobel was stunned for a few moments, and was quite ready to retreat when he came to himself. Noakes, during the whole time, did not show himself, alleging as a reason afterward the presence of his employer Medlicott. "'I'm blessed if your cowardice shan't hang you,' said Joe Brumby to him on their way home. "'Do you think we're going to fight the battles of a fellow like you, "'who hasn't pluck to come forward himself?' "'I've as much pluck as you,' answered Noakes, "'and I'm ready to fight you any day. "'But I know when a man is to come forward and when he's not. "'Hang me. I'm not so near hanging as some folks at Boulabong.' "'We may imagine, therefore, that the night was not spent pleasantly "'among the Brownbys after these adventures. "'There were, of course, very much cursing and swearing, "'and very many threats.' before the party from Boulabong did retreat. Their great point was, of course, this, that Heathcote was wilfully firing the grass, and was therefore no better than an incendiary. Of course, they stoutly denied that the original fire had been intentional, and denied as stoutly that the original fire could be stopped by fires. But at last they went, leaving Heathcote and his party masters of the battlefield. Jerry was taken away in a sad condition, and in subsequent accounts of the transaction given from Boulabong, his fall was put forward as the reason of their flight, he having been the general on the occasion. And Boscobel had certainly lost all stomach for immediate fighting. Immediately behind the battlefield they come across Noakes and Sing Sing, the runaway cook from Gangoyle. The poor Chinaman had made the mistake of joining the party which was not successful. But Harry, though the victory was with him, was hardly in a mood for triumph. He soon found that Medlicott's collarbone was broken, and it would be necessary, therefore, that he should return with the wounded man to the station. And the flames, as he feared, had altogether got ahead of him during the fight. As far as they had gone, they had stopped the fire, having made a black wilderness a mile and a half in length, which, during the whole distance, ceased suddenly at the line at which the subsidiary fire had been extinguished. But while the attack was being made upon them, the flames had crept on to the southward, and had now got beyond their reach. It had seemed, however, that the mass of fire which had got away from them was small, and already the damp of the night was on the grass, and Harry felt himself justified in hoping not that there might be no loss, but that the loss might not be ruinous. Medlicott consented to be taken back to Gangoyle instead of to the mill. 
Perhaps he thought that Kate Daly might be a better nurse than his mother, or that the quiet of the sheep station might be better for him than the clatter of his own mill-wheels. It was midnight, and they had a ride of fourteen miles, which was hard enough upon a man with a broken collarbone. The whole party also was thoroughly fatigued. The work they had been doing was about as hard as could fall to a man's lot, and there had now been many hours without food. Before they started, Mickey produced his flask, the contents of which were divided equally among them all, including Jacko. As they were preparing to start home, Medicare explained that it had struck him by degrees that Heathcote might be right in regard to Noakes, and that he determined to watch the man himself whenever he should leave the mill. On that Monday he had given up work somewhat earlier than usual, saying that, as the following day was Christmas, he should not come to the mill. From that time Medicate and his foreman had watched him. "'Yes,' said he, in answer to a question from Heathcote, "'I can swear that I saw him with a lighted torch in his hand, and that he placed it among the grass. There were two others from Boulabong with him, and they must have seen him too.'" End of chapter 9